Good morning. Great to uh, be able to gather together and worship with you. Happy Easter to all of you. If you have a Bible with you, go with me to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 11 today. And if you do not have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along with us, there are two ways of doing that. There are Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you. You should be able to find one. And if you want to use one of those Bibles and aren't familiar with how to find things in the Bible, we'll be on page 897 of those Bibles. We'll also have all of the Scripture references on the screen behind me uh, to make it easy for you to follow along with us today. We have an expectation that the people who love us the most are going to be the people who are there for us when we need them. I imagine in saying that, there are already people coming to your minds that are those people for you. And certainly you are probably that to someone else. Marvin Gaye did a whole song about this that I think everybody in the entire world knows. Just call my name, I'll be there in a hurry. You don't have to worry, because there ain't, I'm not going to sing it. You can see the fear in some of your eyes. Please don't. There's no mountain high enough, no river wide enough, no valley low enough to keep me from getting to you. Most of us have people in our lives that we would trust to drop everything and do anything for us if we picked up the phone and called, which is why Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, called for Jesus to come to them when they realized that their brother was terminally ill. The Bible says this in John 11 and verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. And when Lazarus' sisters send word to Jesus to let him know that he is ill, they aren't just calling for Jesus to come to his bedside so so that he can say goodbye. There is in this request for him to come, this this notification of the, this, the significance of what's going on, there is a desire and I would say even an expectation that Jesus is going to do something about this. And why wouldn't they have that expectation? After all, Mary and Martha are, are close personal friends of Jesus. Jesus is a close enough friend that he's actually stayed with them in their home. They they know him in a way that lots of other people don't. And not only do they know who Jesus is, not only do they have a personal relationship with him, but they are aware of what he is capable of doing. They would have known the story about the man who was at the pool of Siloam who had been paralyzed for 38 years, who the day he met Jesus stood up and walked because Jesus told him he could. They would have known that. They also would have known that Jesus didn't even actually have to be present with the person to perform the miracle. 
They would have known that a nobleman came and, and asked Jesus to heal his son and that Jesus told him to go home, everything is taken care of. They would have known things like that. They knew what Jesus could do. He was their friend. So their expectation was undoubtedly that there was no mountain that was going to be high enough to keep Jesus from them in this moment of need when they called out. So we are surprised to see that Jesus doesn't appear to be taking this as seriously as they are. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, Jesus receives word, Lazarus is terminally ill, and Jesus disagrees. Maybe this illness isn't terminal after all. And Jesus tells his disciples somewhat cryptically that this illness is for the glory of God. God, and I want you to just kind of bookmark that in your mind because that's going to be a key factor in this story. This illness is for the glory of God. But the Bible goes on to say this in verse 5 of John 11, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, when we read that sentence that says, now, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, our expectation is, this, is that the next sentence is, so he immediately booked a direct flight to Bethany so that he could be with the family. That's what we expect it's going to say. But instead, it says that he took his sweet time. The disciples were concerned about this because Jesus does confide to them that they are, in fact, going to go to Bethany. They are going to answer this, just not in the time frame that is expected of them. And the disciples are immediately concerned about this. Why? Well, Bethany is just two miles from Jerusalem, and if you're familiar with the flow of the story through John's gospel, we're in chapter 11, but in chapter 10, we've just seen that Jesus has made a very controversial statement in his teaching. He said he has just made the claim that he and the Father are one. And that would be a blasphemous claim if it wasn't true. But when he claims to be one with the Father, immediately the crowd picks up stones. They are literally going to put a stop to this right now and put him to death. And so he and his disciples are forced to flee for their lives. Jesus tells them that now they're going to go back. But once more, he says something that seems to minimize the seriousness of Lazarus' illness. In verse 11, it says, After saying these things, he said to them, he's still talking to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So the disciples are immediately immediately relieved by this. They're relieved by the way that Jesus is talking about the serious, seriousness of Lazarus' condition. And they say in verse 12, if he's, if he's only asleep, then he's going to recover. But then Jesus clarifies in verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. 
And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Just go along for the ride with these guys. These poor guys are experiencing emotional whiplash here. Jesus says he's only asleep, and the disciples say, oh, good, that's a relief. And he says, and no, by asleep, I mean dead. And he says he's glad he wasn't there. But he says he's glad that he was not there. There's purpose behind that. It's, it's so that you may believe. And we're seeing that Jesus keeps hinting at the fact that he has something bigger in mind than what their expectations are for him. He wants them to believe. And I want you to, to notice the fact that he's, he's urging belief to his disciples. I mean, these people are already bought in. And so when Jesus says that he wants them to believe, what he is telling us here is that he is trying to draw his disciples into a deeper faith in him than they currently possess. And in fact, this word believe is very important in the story because it's going to appear six more times. So up to this point, we've been focusing on Jesus' conversation with the disciples as they've received word that Jesus' friend Lazarus, whom he loves, is ill and, 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 and is at death's door and has in fact died already. But now the flow of the story is going to transition from the conversation between Jesus and disciples about, his disciples about this issue, and it's going to transition to Jesus' conversation with the sisters about this. Because remember, Mary and Martha are just waiting. And there's no FaceTime. And there's no email. There's no texting. They're just waiting, wondering if and when Jesus is going to show up. And when he, and he does finally arrive in Bethany four days late for the funeral. The first thing that Martha has to say to Jesus has the edge of an accusation. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's not wrong, is she? Martha is grappling with the reality that followers of Jesus have been grappling with for centuries, and that is the fact that that. That, that Jesus is able to do something and yet is not. Jesus could have done something and he didn't. Apparently, in her mind, the valley was low enough to keep him from getting to her when she needed him. 
Peter, hope is not gone entirely because she says she knows in verse 22 that God will give Jesus whatever he asks. And Jesus then makes a promise to her in that moment in verse 23. He says this, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never not, never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. As, the, as we see this, these, these, this dialogue and these exchanges, we're really starting to see that Jesus is up to something here. He's urging on Martha the importance of faith, the importance of belief, the importance of trust. I mean, in those verses, 23 to 27, he's urging belief on her uh, another four times. And I'll say this as I said it of the disciples, Mary and Martha already believe. What Jesus is attempting to do here, his intent is to draw them into a deeper expression and experience of faith. But there's somebody who is conspicuously absent from these conversations. Who's that? It's Mary. Mary's nowhere to be seen. And the Bible tells us that Jesus calls for Mary. She did not come with Martha to greet him. And we can tell in her in her words, that this feeling, the sense of betrayal in some part by Jesus is still very fresh for her because when she comes to him, the first thing out of her mouth is this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you heard that before? That is the exact statement word for word of what her sister has just said. From Mary's perspective, the river was wide enough to keep him from getting to her when she needed him. Mary has no doubt been discussing this with Martha as they've been wondering whether Jesus is going to show up at all. They're no doubt reflecting on the things that they have seen Jesus do with their own eyes and the things that they have heard Jesus do from his own mouth and Mary is basically asking the question here, where's my miracle? I mean, these, you've done all these things for people who you don't even know. And We might be tempted to think at this point in the story that because Jesus knows exactly what he is going to do, that he is approaching this whole situation with a, a sense of coldness, a little bit of indifference. and In fact, some of the language might, might accidentally communicate that to us. We might read it that way. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible describes for us 
Jesus' emotional response to Mary when he encounters her grief. And it actually records three responses on his part to that grief. The Bible says that he is deeply moved, that he is greatly troubled, and that he weeps. We talked about this phrase, deeply moved, at Christmas time. Some of you may have been here for that. But this Greek word underlying our English translation, deeply moved, carries the idea of an indignance. It's, and it's not just that, that Jesus is indignant about this whole situation, is that, is that there is a righteous anger being drawn out of him as he surveys this situation. The Bible also says that there's another emotional response drawn out of him, and that that is that he is greatly troubled. And it's interesting that this this phrase appears just a couple of chapters later in in, uh, chapter 13 from Jesus' own mouth when he says that he is greatly troubled by what Judas is about to do in betraying him. And then the Bible tells us, Jesus cries. So, he's got an intention, purpose, under everything that he's doing here. Don't think for a moment that the Son of God and his intent and purpose in working all of this out is not deeply emotionally moved. He stands with these sisters and their family and their friends, and he experiences firsthand the deep sadness of a world broken by sin and invaded and infiltrated with death. He's not too much of a man to openly cry about. Jesus does not weep as one who is a bystander, helpless to do anything about it. Jesus weeps, but with an intent to do something. When Jesus approaches the tomb where Lazarus has been buried, he instructs some people to remove the stone that is covering the entrance to the tomb, and Martha, who has been his chief dialogue partner in this, immediately objects because there is a stench that accompanies death, permeates this world. There's an understandable hint of unbelief here, but Jesus presses her, beginning in verse 40. And he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I love the, the old English of, of the King James translation, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44 says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Boy, do I wish there were a little bit more details here. I mean, that's just it. What, like, what in the world happened? What was that scene like? I mean, we're familiar, most of us are familiar with the story. If this is the first time you've ever heard the story, that's awesome. Love to see somebody react to seeing this for the first time. But just, just try to put yourself in the shoes of these onlookers where a stone has been rolled away from a tomb. And this guy is walking out. We just went to his funeral. And now he's pulling away at the claws that his head is bound in. We see here in this that that Jesus was not, in fact, indifferent to their pain. But he wanted, what he wanted to do was so much bigger than performing a miracle of healing. He wanted to give deep roots to their faith. He wanted to build in them a trust that would sustain them throughout the tragedies of life because this was one of many. And Jesus wasn't going to heal each one. I think that the key verse to understanding the point of this whole story in John's gospel is found in what Jesus says to Martha in verse 40. We've already read it, but I just want to draw your attention to it again. In John 11 and verse 40, Jesus says to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, John doesn't record this part of the conversation with Martha for us. He must have had this in their, in their dialogue that isn't recorded for us. But we know this is Jesus' intention because remember I told you at the beginning, file this away because it's going to matter later. What does Jesus tell his disciples at the very beginning? This illness is for the glory of God. And that theme is being returned to here again, 37 verses later in verse 40. What Jesus told Martha is the truth that I want us to see today. If I could put it in my own words, it would be this. Those who believe will experience God's saving presence. Those who believe will experience God's saving presence. Why do I say it that way? Well, I believe that's what Jesus is essentially telling Martha when he says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God, and here's why. 
In his book, Gospel of Glory, a man by the name of Richard Bauckham has written a, a whole book on the theme of glory just in John's gospel. And in that book, he defines glory in John's gospel as the visible manifestation of God. Now, if you have some familiarity with the Bible, then you will remember that there is a a figure from the Old Testament named Moses who asks God a question. He's got the privilege of speaking to God face to face, as it were. And one of the questions that Moses has for God is this, will you show me your glory? What does God tell him? Nobody can see my face and live. So then John opens his gospel and he says something remarkable. He says in chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When, whereas Moses could only catch a glimpse of God's glory, as he was told, no one can see God's glory and live, John says that, that me and the other eyewitnesses have looked the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Visible manifestation of his presence. I said that to see God's glory is to experience His saving presence. And I say saving because John has recorded throughout this this book, throughout this gospel, a series of seven signs that point to the Savior's saving power. The The resurrection of Lazarus from the dead is the culminating sign as they escalate until... A man is brought from death to life. But it is not the culminating event of John's gospel. Those were signs, seven of which all pointed to something even greater. They are pointing to what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross, something that Jesus refers to in very strange terms. He refers to the coming cross as the hour of his what? Glorification. Now, I would have expected the hour of his suffering. But Jesus refers to the cross as the hour of his glorification. And when Jesus is praying to the Father before he goes to the cross, glory is what is on his mind. He says in John 17 and verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me they may be with me where I am to see my glory. To see God's glory is to see his saving work on the cross and his sacrifice of himself for sinners like me and sinners like you. Jesus wanted Martha to believe so that she would see the glory of God. And the resurrection that she was about to witness was only a foretaste of a resurrection that was coming. And that's the resurrection that we are celebrating today. Like the tomb of Lazarus, the tomb of Jesus would soon be empty. 
And an angel would deliver this messages, message to the people peering in in Matthew 28. The angel says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to delay death. Jesus wanted them to see that he had come to do far more than delay death. He had come to defeat it. So let me speak a word, first of all, to those of us who are Christians this morning, those of us who are followers of Jesus. Every one of us either has had or will have a Mary and Martha experience. You have either had or will have a time when you've called for Jesus and he didn't. I would imagine for some of us, there is a bitterness that rises up even as we consider that. Because that moment has happened. And you called, and he didn't show. You either have been left thinking, or you will be left thinking. I thought our relationship was different than that. I thought we were friends. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus is all-loving and all-powerful, and yet he allows tragedy to strike. some of us, that's a faith-breaking experience. The passage that we're looking at today shows us that Jesus intends for those moments to be faith-building experiences. When we call and Jesus doesn't come, we're asking the same things the sisters were asking. Where's my miracle? But as one writer has put it, Christianity does not promise to fix your marriage, fix your kids, end all your anxieties, stop all your sin struggles or expel your depression. It might do some of these things, but there's no guarantee that it will do any of them, at least in the moment. 
the thing that is going to sustain you, the thing that is going to sustain me through life as we experience a steady stream of trial, a steady stream of loss, a steady stream of pain, a steady stream of death is not a steady stream of miracles that fix every problem we encounter, but a glory that will sustain our souls. Jesus, contrary to what some might tell you, doesn't promise you a miracle every time. And we can't look back and say, well, if only I had had enough faith. If only I had maybe done the right series of things, maybe that would stiff arm God into giving me my miracle in this moment. It doesn't work like that. But what Jesus does promise is his saving presence with us through the trials and tragedies of life. We may be tempted to object and say, well, wait a minute. Mary and Martha, they ended up getting their miracle. They actually got a better miracle. Can I remind you, Lazarus died again. He's the only person in human history laying on his deathbed that said, here we go again. Because Jesus has died on the cross and risen from the dead, we can experience the saving presence of the one who told Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. So no mountain is too high, and no valley is too low, and no river is too wide to keep his saving presence from you. The power of his resurrection gives us a hope that sustains us and roots us and grounds us and keeps us as we go through a world that is experiencing the brokenness of death, because we've lost and we're going to keep losing. People are going to be, that we love, are going to be taken from us, even though we've asked for a miracle. You are mortal, and you may beat it the first time or the second time. But death is coming, and you're not going to be miraculously saved from it again and again. But because of the fact of the resurrection that we celebrate this morning, we can experience the saving presence of God come what may. And the Bible tells us in the very end of of it in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4 that one day he is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
for the former things have passed away. And you want to know what the proof of concept is? Resurrection. So the question that Jesus asks me, the question that Jesus is asking you this morning, as you face difficulty or your own bitterness from when you called and it seemed like he didn't answer, the question Jesus asks you this morning is the same one he asked Martha, and it's this, do you believe this? Do you believe that the saving presence of God is going to be enough to get you through? Maybe you're with us this morning and you have never experienced God's saving presence and you're wondering how this can be yours. The answer is, is actually fairly simple. It comes from the word that's repeated no less than seven times throughout this story. It's the simple word, believe. People don't get raised from the dead except when they do. We believe the Son of God came to earth and was literally killed and literally rose. And that changes absolutely everything. And he tells you that you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be given new life in Him. You can be sustained with, by His saving presence no matter what comes your way or what has already come your way in life if you put your faith and trust in, in Him. So as we go into a world that is marked by so much suffering, we take heart in the reality of the resurrection and in the words of of Jesus. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you on this Easter Sunday when we celebrate your resurrection that every word we have read and believed is true. And as we face difficulty and disappointment and bitterness in our own lives, I pray that you would give us a deeper and more rooted and grounded faith that you are the resurrection and the life and that you are with us. Your saving presence will keep us and sustain us until the end when there are no more tears and no more death. If there is someone here this morning who does not know Christ in a saving way, I pray that they would not rest, that they would not leave this building 
until they have talked with someone about the state of their soul. And I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart to see and to believe the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.